for joining me for this episode of the Phantom Court podcast. I'm Tatiana Nestichuk, a barrister at Phantom Court Chambers. On this episode, we are looking at recent arbitration law decisions of the UK courts. I was lucky enough to be joined by three top arbitration specialists, Louis Flannery QC, Beiju Varsani and Annalisa Day QC, who have shared their knowledge of the background to the cases, their views on their outcomes, as well as practical tips for the arbitration practitioners. Louis Flannery QC is a partner at Michigan Derea, who took Silk in 2018, one of the few solicitor advocates specialising in arbitration to take Silk. Louis is a co-author of Merkin and Flannery on Arbitration Act 1996 and speaks regularly on arbitration and civil fraud at conferences all over the world. He is recognised as a leading arbitration practitioner by the Legal 500 Chambers and Partners and Global Arbitration Review. Beiju Vasani is a partner and Head of International Arbitration at Ivanyan and Partners. For over 20 years, his practice focused exclusively on international arbitration and he serves as both counsel and arbitrator. He specialises in investor state arbitrations, including bilateral investment treaty claims. His work includes advising states on negotiation and drafting on investment treaties and investors on structuring of their investments for maximum treaty protection. Beiju sits on the panel of several arbitral institutions, including ICSID. Annalisa Day QC is a silk at Phantom Court Chambers, who is described in the legal directories as a leading lawyer of her generation and a standout genius. She's frequently instructed in high-value and complex cases as both counsel and arbitrator. She was awarded International Arbitration Silk of the Year at the 2020 Chambers Bar Awards, has previously been listed as one of the 500 most influential people in the UK by the Bretts, and is ranked as a leading silk in six practice areas, including, of course, international arbitration. Her experience spans numerous jurisdictions, including the UK, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and the Caribbean. In this episode, we discuss the Supreme Court decisions in Halliburton and Chubb and Enker and Chubb, the Court of Appeal decision in A versus C, and the recent High Court decision arising out of a bilateral investment treaty claim in Kazakhstan versus Worldwide Minerals. We explore the speaker's views on the decisions and the practical implications they may bring. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the arbitration episode of the Phantom Court podcast. Arbitration law appeals are rare visitors to the UK Supreme Court. And yet, much like the buses, the end of 2020 saw two major decisions being released Let's start with the most recent decision, Zetton, Halliburton and Chubb. This case, as you probably all know by now, concerned an application to remove an arbitrator under Section 24 of the Arbitration Act 1996. The arbitrator in question was appointed as a chair by the court after a contested hearing and uh, following a nomination by one of the parties, Chubb. Subsequently, and without Halliburton's knowledge, he accepted appointments in two other arbitrations arising out of the same incident. No disclosure of subsequent appointments were made by the arbitrator to Halliburton, although he did disclose the appointment in the earlier Chubb and Halliburton arbitration. The Court of Appeal concluded that while the arbitrator in question ought to have disclosed his multiple appointments, an objective observer would not have concluded that there was a real possibility that he was biased. The case then came on appeal to the Supreme Court, a number of arbitral institutions and bodies intervened, including the ICC, LCIA and the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, whom Lee represented. 
And this question is for you. I know from the Supreme Court's decision that um, Chartered Institute it was the only intervener who also gave an opinion on how the case should be decided on the fact. Oh, they slapped us down for that, yeah. We were fairly robust in our view on the basis of the facts. Primarily, this was an arbitrator who had been injected into the chair position by the court over the objections of Halliburton, and who therefore, from that moment onwards, we said, even enhanced duty of to be absolutely scrupulously, you know, to have to have scrupulous integrity, and to be careful in every way. And it beggared belief that six months later, he'd taken a take an appointment by the same instructing solicitors in the same event for a different contractor against the same insurer. And then a month later, take a third appointment for another insurer, but the same event and the same issue arising, which is the reasonableness of the settlement, and not disclose those back to Halliburton. We got slapped down for it, but we certainly thought that we, we should take a view, even though we weren't a party. We made arguments that Halliburton didn't make, and nor did they adopt. I think it'd be interesting to hear your views on what the court decided. I'll quickly summarise before going on to the question. I think there were two parts to the decision. First, the court thought that the arbitrator was under a legal duty of disclosure, and the Supreme Court thought that was a component of the duty to act fairly and impartially under Section 33 of the Arbitration Act. They also specified the content of the duty. They said the duty required the arbitrator to disclose all matters, including multiple appointments, which would or might give rise to justifiable doubts as to his or her impartiality in the mind of a fair-minded and informed observer, effectively adopting, I think, Louis, the formulation you have in the Merkin and Flannery on the Arbitration Act. Yes. The first part of the ruling, which you've correctly summarised, was needed because quite unbelievably, that Chubb were arguing that there is no duty of disclosure under English law on the part of an arbitrator, none at all. No duty of disclosure. There was only the duty of fairness under Section 33, and that was that. And that certainly got our goat and got the goat of the ICC and the LCIA, who both said, don't be so silly. It's a duty that's recognised the world over, and it's enshrined in every single institution's rules. It's enshrined in most national legislation. It's just that the Act is not modern enough to, to include it. But of course, there's a duty of disclosure, and it must be implied. So the Supreme Court got that bit right. Yeah, and I think that it should be added, I should should have said that this was an ad hoc arbitration. So, of course, the usual rules that you'd find in, in the arbitral institutions did not apply, which is perhaps why we had such an interesting discourse about all the relevant duties from the Supreme Court. Yes, it was a Bermuda form insurance, which is, is common in uh, insurance policies, providing for New York law, but London arbitration and no institutional rules. The second part, the would or might, the formulation in the Act for the test of bias is gives rise to justifiable doubts as to impartiality. That expression was not in any English law case that preceded the Act, nor is it a common law expression. It's a civil law expression. It came from Professor Peter Sanders in 1974 in a meeting that predated the introduction of the 1976 UNCTRA rules. And that formulation has stuck in every single set of rules you'll ever come across. Gives rise to justifiable doubts as to impartiality. What the Supreme Court said in relation to what an arbitrator has to disclose is anything that 
might, underline the word might, give rise to justifiable doubts rather than anything that would give rise. And I cannot dissent from that as a test. It's, it's absolutely right. It is, if you're in any doubt, disclose. That's another way of putting it. If in doubt, disclose. They held that he had the duty to disclose. They held that it was a material fact to disclose. They held that he was in breach of the duty by not disclosing. But they then, for a reason that you'll describe, didn't actually go the, way, the whole hog and say, as a result of that, there were justifiable doubts and he should be removed. So let me get back to the second part of the decision, which I guess is perhaps a lot more controversial than the first. Secondly, they thought that in assessing whether there is a real possibility that an arbitrator is biased, the fair-minded and informed observer must have regard to the facts and circumstances known at the time of the hearing to remove an arbitrator. And it was on the facts they held that this test was not satisfied, there was no apparent or unconscious bias on the facts. And my question now is to Annalisa. Do you agree with the decision? Well, I agree with part of it. The part that Louise described uh, already, obviously it was helpful that the court held very clearly that this was a matter of English law, that anything that would give rise to an appearance of bias would or might, that was a matter of English law and not simply best practice, as Chubb had argued. And I think that is a real step forward and does mean we are in step with the international practices. They also made very clear that the duty of disclosure continues throughout the arbitration. Again, you would think that's obvious, but it's good to have it reasserted. And then they also said, and this part has also been a bit controversial, that the duty of disclosure does not override the arbitrator's separate duty of privacy and confidentiality. And that has given rise to a lot of debate about how the arbitrator discloses and complies with one duty without breaching another. But I think it's helpful now that that, that, that absolute right is very clear and is enshrined. Some people have criticised the Supreme Court for not giving clearer guidance. But personally, I think it's quite difficult to give clearer guidance. And I think the guidance is pretty clear as to what you have to disclose. And as Louis has said, if in doubt, you disclose. The controversial aspect of the decision is obviously the timing of assessment of the possibility of bias. And the court there was saying that you could, you could judge that with the benefit of hindsight. And personally, I simply do not understand that. It's a completely arbitrary point at which that decision is being made. That, to me, is the fundamental problem with it. It depends on when the non-disclosure comes out, and it depends then even when the court hearing is, because different information may be available at different times. And I think that most people in the international arbitration community would feel that the failure to make the material disclosure should be determined at the time of the failure, because that's a certain date. Or at the very latest, at the time of the objection, at the latest. But, but I'm with you on that. At the time of the failure to disclose. So, and that's sort of given rise to this, uh, some negative commentary on in how English law deals with this. And that's a, that's a shame because I think large parts of this decision are, are extremely clear and extremely helpful. But that certainly is the most controversial part. I don't know if Beiju's got any thoughts on, on the date or what other dates might be used. I do, Annalise, and thank you. And maybe, Tatiana, I'll start by maybe talking about my role in this podcast, slightly different from my colleagues. I, 
I don't do any English litigation. I am a solicitor advocate, but I have never appeared before an English court. And I've spent most of my professional career outside of England and Wales. So I, I, I guess I, I'm playing the role of the of the audience that's listening in that is outside of the United Kingdom, but practices are interested in international arbitration. And what struck me is I think I share uh, and echo what Annalise and Louis says, that I think they got the legal duty right. I'm glad that's now baked in to English law. What really struck me was how they left, the, uh, got this arbitrator off the hook. I don't know him, but I would like to think that if his conduct came up before an institution such as the ICC or the LCAA, or for example, under the ICSID rules before the other two arbitrators, I don't think he would have survived a challenge. And I'll give you a couple of notes of comparison. In the ICSID case of Caratube 2, an arbitrator called Bruno Bosch who was Kazakhstan's appointment uh, appointee to a case called Ruby Rose against Kazakhstan, which had a series of facts, a series of uh, legal questions, uh, which was then decided in favor of Kazakhstan. A second arbitration was started, which had overlapping facts, overlapping law, overlapping witnesses. Bruno Bosch was, was appointed again by Kazakhstan. He was challenged by the claimant on the basis that he had, among other things, information that the other two didn't have. And the other two arbitrators accepted the sustain the challenge because they said, yes, absolutely, we are in an information asymmetry compared to him. And it is unfair that he's heard these same witnesses on the same facts and decided these laws on the same issues. So one could get an idea that the arbitrator in this case may have got a different reception before an institution. Another example is Dr. Stanimir Alexandrov, as, as you know, in an annulment decision in ISA versus Spain, where the annulment committee at ICSID said that his failure to disclose his relationship with Brattle Group, which he should have disclosed, similar to this arbitrator should have disclosed his other appointments, his failure to disclose in and of itself denied Spain the opportunity to challenge him and therefore denied them a fundamental rule of procedure. And therefore, in and of itself, was a breach of, of, of the rules. So I know Louis has argued, and, and I think this is, for me, this is persuasive, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll push this back to Louis on this point with your permission, Tatiana, which is that once an arbitrator has found that they should have disclosed an issue, right, and they don't, then the burden should shift because I agree that otherwise the standard is so high, so difficult to say, well, yes, they're biased. Well, but there's no proof of bias. How are you ever going to find proof of bias? I like the idea of shifting that burden. And I understand, Louis, you had articulated that. Yes, it was something that we were keen to try and get heard, as it were, in front of the, the court. But they, they didn't pick up a lot of arguments. And the reason why I think it's right that the burden must shift is because there is no basis on which really to test what is in the mind of that arbitrator. And without that burden shifting from the moment that non-disclosure is revealed, you are 
as challenger, always going to have an uphill struggle unless you take the approach that you've described, Beju, in the in the in investment treaty cases, that the non-disclosure, that's the end of it. Thank you for playing. Good night. Which is, I think, how it should be. You shouldn't really need to go any further unless you've got some compelling reason why you didn't disclose. Might be confidentiality. It might be something else. Then uh, I think that's it. That's the end of the line. And I think you're right that if you've been in front of an in any institutional process on the back of a challenge, he wouldn't have survived. I can't believe it. I think that's really interesting what you say, Leo, about the shifting of burden, because all the Supreme Court has said is that it's a factor, that the non-disclosure is a factor to take into account when you decide on impartiality. Uh, they also interestingly said that an arbitrator who knowingly fails to act in a way which fairness requires is guilty of partiality. And so it seems that they're saying, well, if you can prove knowledge of acting to the detriment of the parties, then, then that's enough. But as you say, it's almost impossible to prove that for a party. And they they came to the conclusion that the common law test for bias is exactly the same as the Section 24 justifiable doubt system partiality. We alone argued that that was rubbish, that they were different tests, different tests for different re for, for the reason that there were different circumstances. You treat an arbitrator differently to a judge. And although the Supreme Court gave 15 reasons why an arbitrator could be looked at differently to a, a judge, they said it's the same test, but you have to apply it in the knowledge that there are 15 differences, rather than simply saying it's a different test. It's a civil law test. It's not a common law test. And we shouldn't just assume that it's identical to the test of bias because that leads you down the road that they had to go down, which is under English law, you've got to prove bias. If you don't prove bias, that's it. And we're going to assess it at the time that we're, we are listening to the argument, not at the time of the arbitrator's failure to disclose. The point we made was at the time of accepting the second and third appointments, if you've freeze-framed everything at that point and said to the arbitrator, can you guarantee us that you will never receive anything or learn about anything that the other two arbitrators won't learn about by reason of your appointment in the other two arbitrations? Can you guarantee that will never happen? And he, of course he can't say, I guarantee it. He couldn't possibly have given that guarantee. He therefore couldn't have given a guarantee of a level playing field. And he should at that point have simply said, well, I won't take the appointments rather than I'll take them and I won't tell you, which is what he did. I think um, it'd be interesting to discuss how to now apply this decision in practice. And my question is for Beiju. I know you sit both as an arbitrator and as counsel. And let's, for example, take an arbitrator as an arbitrator. How on earth could you make a decision as to whether to recuse yourself when you've got to make that decision on the basis of the facts at the time of the court hearing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great question. I'm, I'm going to betray my double hatting by picking up, first of all, my arbitrator hat. I think my colleagues said it best when they said, if in doubt, disclose. I think the Supreme Court picked up on that there are ranges of doubts. I think they said where there would be doubts, I think it's very clear you have to disclose. And in fact, if that doubt is pretty serious, I don't think you should be putting forward disclosure, but you should be simply saying no thank you to the remit. There is something that is unlikely to cause a doubt, then I think the right course of action is not to disclose that at all. Well, uh, I'll tell you one thing I absolutely despise, 
by the way, is I'm an American citizen, so I can say this, but American arbitrators who disclose everything, right? They, they give you the five, pay- I, I met this person at a dinner in 2014 and we had a nice chat over a steak. Okay, that's A, true. B, it means that the arbitrator can't be accused of hiding anything. But C, and the worst part, it then creates an expectation in everyone that now this is the kind of things that should be disclosed, right? So I, I, I really would prefer a discerning arbitrator than one who simply says, open kimono, here's every single interaction I've had with this council or this party. That, I don't think that helps anything. So I think those situations along the spectrum are relatively simple. I think the one that's tricky is where there might be a justifiable doubt depending on how things progress, right? In other words, as the future unfolds, it may be that we get to a point where I have an issue, even if right now I don't. And I think there, the right thing to do again is to decline the appointment. Because if you gamble as an arbitrator and say, you know what, I'll I'll take the appointment, hopefully things shake out in my favor, and they don't, then at that point, you have to disclose or you have to resign, or you'll be challenged. You've wasted everyone's time, you've wasted everyone's cost. I don't know why the party that appointed you would even want you to carry on in that situation. So really, the right thing to do is to say no, um, absolutely from the beginning. The advocate part, I think, is is difficult. Look, whenever I get a client that says, oh, look, we found something about this arbitrator, or you found something about this arbitrator, I always make the same point that if you're going to, and it's a horrible phrase, but I'm going to say it, if you shoot for the king, you have to kill him, or shoot for the queen, you have to kill her, right? There is absolutely zero point in taking a shot if you're not going to actually accomplish the, the, the assassination as such, because Otherwise, you've just got a very one very pissed off arbitrator who remains in your case. And I have to say, I fully agree with Annalise that I'm really troubled by this hindsight question. In, in other words, that you you take it from the point of view of a of a third party, the the, the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus, as 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 you remember from first year law school, who will look at the case at the time of the hearing and say you know, yay or nay, after all the facts have unraveled, different things have happened. And as you say, who knows what will continue to unravel. And I think I, I, I fully agree with Annalise, that's the wrong time period. The right time period is at the time that disclosure should have been made. And I know Louis suggested maybe at the time objection could or should have been made. I, I think that's also a perfectly reasonable time. I prefer... At the latest, yeah. I have to say, I prefer at the time disclosure should have been made because I want to I want to keep it on the arbitrator. I want to keep the, spot, the spotlight, if you like, on the arbitrator and say, look, your, your timing is there. And I think this may come from the fact that, that the Supreme Court moved off the fact that this is not about the parties, but a, about a reasonable third party. And that, you know, maybe that allowed them to do this as, as Annalise said, hindsight test at the time of the hearing, rather than parties at the time disclosure should have been made. And I much prefer parties at the time disclosure should have been made because that sets a guillotine. And what it means is that the arbitrator has to, either has to disclose 
or has to recuse him or herself and can't gamble because the gamble will be, you know what, I'll take this. I won't tell anyone. And if it unravels in my favor, I'm good to go because the Supreme Court has said at the end of the day, I can't, I can, or I can, maybe I can clean up this mess myself, right? I can, I can put a few mayor culpas. I can, you know, tell everyone you're okay with that, aren't you? And they'll say, okay. And then I can say, you know, I, I should have done it, but I didn't. And I kind of feel that intervening period is a very dangerous one for cleaning up what should have been a cut and dried situation at disclosure point. Annalise, I know you wanted um, to add to that. Just a couple of points, if I might. I think that there's been a lot of criticism of the Supreme Court when they lifted the anonymity. And we obviously, everyone now knows who the arbitrator is. And what's interesting is people are now suspicious that they're all mates. And that's why the decision is as it was. I actually don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that the Supreme Court looks at it from the viewpoint of challenging a judge. And Louis right, they cite the differences. But it is a long time since any of them, indeed, I don't think any of them sat in international arbitration as it is now. And it seems to me that it's still very much focused on this test of removing a judge, which should be different because the judge is there by the state. It's not like an arbitrator who's appointed by the parties effectively, consensually. And to my way of thinking, once one of those parties has lost faith because the arbitrator has breached a fundamental duty by not disclosing, why doesn't that party have a right for that arbitrator to no longer act? It's very different to a judge. So I, I do think that's an important, it's important to look at it. And I do wonder if at some point we'll see now a differently constituted Supreme Court facing a different question to try and get around the difficulties that arise out of Halliburton. The other thing that's interesting is it took a very long time for the decision to come. And that suggests to me there may have been some disagreement. Of course, we don't see that reflected in the judgments. But it's interesting, perhaps, that there may still be an opportunity in the future to progress this further. I agree. Beju. Yeah, I had a question that struck me reading the judgment that I, I wanted to, and sorry, Tatiana, I don't mean to step into your shoes, but I, I'm just curious as to whether everyone thinks this is or is not a factor. But but the facts were, as you remember, he was the chair in the Chubb-Halliburton arbitration. And then Chubb went and appointed him in another arbitration as the party-appointed arbitrator. And I thought that was important. I think the Supreme Court sort of dismissed that as not relevant as his role, right? Whether he was the chair or, or, a, or a party appointed. But I, for me, that was important. And I wonder whether you agree in, in the sense of had Chubb and the other, I can't remember, it was Transocean maybe, had him as chair in the other case, that that would have been different than the fact that he was party appointed by Chubb in that other case. So I guess what riled me slightly was the fact that Chubb had a chairman and then approached that chairman and say, hey, how would you like to be my party appointed arbitrator in another case? And if in one of my cases, the chair was appointed as a party appointed by my opponent, yeah, I, I, I would take issue with that. However, if he or she was appointed as a chair in another case, 
I would have less issue with that. And I just wonder whether I'm, maybe I'm seeing shadows, I'm making too much of that. But the fact that he was appointed as a party appointed, as opposed to a chair appointee, whether that made any difference. I agree. I think that the fact that he he was only appointed party arbitrator, neither here nor there, and in many ways, it should have even given rise to even greater concerns because the solicitors uh, who appointed him were themselves privy to the fact that he'd been appointed in the first arbitration and in, in the third. And they and he alone knew about the commonality of the appointments. And they only did so because he was appointed as party appointed arbitrator. But at the point when he'd taken the second and third appointments, he knew he'd had already taken the appointment as chair over the head and over the objections of Halliburton. And for him to have somehow magically overlooked that the disclosure of the latest appointments is uh, surprising, to say the least. Yeah. And I think Louis touches on something that is also important when he says that Chubb and Rokerson had certain information that Halliburton didn't. And doesn't that go to the fundamental nature of the reason you're disclosing? It's so that everybody has the same information before them. Yeah. The asymmetry of information was, was a point um, made very well and very heavily by Halliburton, but, but picked up by each of the three main interveners, as in the ICC, LCIA and us. The, the shipping and uh, commodities arbitration institutions weren't interested in that at all because there are different considerations in those fields. But, but for, we, we picked up the asymmetry of information point and, and really ran with it. And it's, it gets something of a mention in the, in the Supreme Court, but nowhere near enough uh, emphasis is placed on it. But in a sense, it's quite a good practical test if you're acting as an arbitrator because then the reason the duty to disclose often arises is because you're depriving one party of having access to information that the other party has. And therefore, that's why it's important to have a level playing field and for everybody to know that and make an informed decision as to the right way forward. Yes, I agree. Because it's, it's impossible as an arbitrator to have some sort of ethical wall in your mind. This information I will keep in this case and this information I will keep in that case. Which, believe it or not, Beiju, was the approach taken at first instance by then Mr. Justice Popperwell. Of course, he's able to put out of his mind information from received in one arbitration, which was a sort of, uh, hello, what, what moment when that came out. But that was the approach taken then. That, that, that was the argument. The argument was much more nuanced and refined when it came to the Supreme Court. But it was, it was pretty uh, appalling that that was even thought of. At first instance. I think even even at the Supreme Court, the judges do say, the majority do say that the fact is the arbitrator is meant to be impartial, going to your point, Beiju. They said no matter whether the arbitrator is party appointed or court appointed or appointed by the two other arbitrators appointed by the parties, the duty is exactly the same. You've got to be impartial and therefore we will not pay any attention to the fact that some of these are party appointed. But I think you're right. It's quite difficult, even as an objective observer, if you apply the Supreme Court's test, um, to say... Well, objectively, there is no difference between the party appointed arbitrator, especially where the chair was later appointed. I think this is the important bit that he was a, he was appointed by a party later without the knowledge to the other party. Yeah, 
Can I make one point of clarification for Beju's benefit? That there's a difference between the reasonable man um, personified by the man on the Clapham omnibus and what the court described as the informed and fair-minded observer. In my view, the difference is that the informed and fair-minded observer is likely to be better behaved and probably better dressed. <laughs> yes, and wearing, wearing a mask in Clapham omnibus. Yes. There are definitely two different passengers on the Clapham omnibus. And um, <laughs> as Lord Roger once said, uh, the late Lord Roger once said, the fair-minded and informed observer is not necessarily somebody who, who should be welcomed particularly warmly on that omnibus. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on now to the second Supreme Court case, perhaps less controversial? Well, it depends on your point uh, of view. This is the Enter and Sharp case. Well, yes. This concerns the governing law of the arbitration agreement. So the question was, which system of law governs the validity and scope of the arbitration clause? Uh, the Supreme Court held that in the absence of express or implied choice of law for the arbitration agreement, it will be governed by the law most closely connected to it. But then it's split in deciding which that law should be. The majority said that the law most closely connected to the arbitration agreement is the law of the seat. And the minority, Lord Sales and Burroughs, decided that the law with which the main contract is most closely connected should govern the arbitration agreement. My first question is for Annalise. Do you think that the majority of the Supreme Court got the right result on the issue of governing law? I think the majority was definitely correct. I think for two reasons. First of all, that that would be consistent with the reasonable expectations of commercial parties most of whom would regard the arbitration agreement as part of the main contract in which it was contained and therefore within the scope of its governing law clause. Secondly, I think, again, this test promotes commercial certainty and consistency. It's also consistent with the New York Convention. And in my view, it will reduce the disputes that could arise, some meritoriously, perhaps some less meritoriously, as to what the governing law is. So I think the majority decision was definitely correct. And I think that's a generally held view, certainly compared to Halliburton. <laughs> I'm seeing shaking heads, so we'll, we'll, we'll hear about that. But I think there is much to be said for, for having a certain and a clear rule here. Beju, would you, would you mind if, if I ask you, because I think you disagree with Annalise's view. I do. Well, look, I, I've been a fan of Andrew Burroughs since since I was a student and I've read his book on restitution. But I, I just found his minority opinion so persuasive. Look, the, the major, I like the fact the majority synthesizes English law with sort of international custom or practice. OK, the New York Convention, all that's great. What I found a little bit contradictory is, is if there's an express or implied choice of governing law, then the seat is irrelevant, right? We don't see the seat. Then all of a sudden, if the express or implied governing law isn't present, oh, but now the seat is really important for deciding the law of the, the arbitration agreement. I, I just found that a little bit contradictory. I like the fact it gives certainty. I, 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 think, I think that's so important. And English law, of course, for for contracting parties around the world, what, what they love most about English law is the certainty. So look, governing law of the main contract, express or implied, and if not, then whatever you've got as your seat is the governing law of the, of the arbitration agreement. Great. I just found Burroughs's minority opinion 
just better. And and I just wonder, I'm just thinking, and and maybe this is overthinking it, but in terms of logistics, let's say you have to hear evidence on pre-contractual negotiations, right? There is no express or implied law governing the main contract. However, you find the closest connection to be Russia and therefore Russian law applies. Ditto on the arbitration agreement, but it says London, therefore English law applies. Now we're listening to pre-contract negotiations as regard to the contract as a whole. I think, if I'm not wrong, you kind of you could hear it in one, but not with regard to the other. So logistically, it doesn't make too much sense. And I'd also say this, look, as someone who, who negotiates these clauses, contracting parties see the arbitration clause as part of the contract, right? Just, just logistically. You say, look, this contract shall be governed by Russian law, and you can sit there and talk to them about the, the separability or severability of the arbitration agreement, and they'll just look at you as a client and say, okay, that's great, but this contract is governed by English law or Russian law, and the arbitration agreement is part of the contract. It's a clause in the contract. So I think that contracting parties understand the governing law to govern everything. London seat and English law is about what may happen five years down the track. Not now, not governing anything now. It's if and when we get into dispute, Yes, that's when English law comes into play and we chose London and therefore English law comes into play. So the idea that English law governs today when this is, for most contracting parties, simply a clause in a main contract which they've already decided or has the closest connection to outside of England, that's where I'm not quite sure I fully agree with the majority. So what is your take on that, Louis? One of my colleagues is in favour of the decision of the majority. The other of my colleagues, equally learned, is in favour of the decision of the minority. It falls to me to decide which of the two uh, whose view I prefer. I'm afraid that with the greatest respect to my colleague, Ms. Day, QC, I find myself more aligned with the uh, remarks made by my learned friend, Mr. Vasani, in the sense that I, too, found the judgment of Lord Burroughs a more compelling argument for the, for the proposition that if the closest connection test in Rome 1 leads to the application of a particular system of law for the governing contract, it should, absent any compelling circumstances to indicate otherwise, cover also the arbitration agreement because that's much more likely to be in line with the party's intentions if those intentions are to be inferred by reference to Rome 1. The problem, obviously, was that in this case, there was no express choice of law or implied choice of law for the governing contract. So you had to look at closest connection, and therefore there was the fight, as it were, between is it more closely connected to the seat or to the governing contract. But I found the reasoning of the majority a little bit it smacked a little bit of reverse engineering to get the result that they wanted. Whereas the minority reasoning I found compelling. And I know that that view is shared by a number of our colleagues in the profession. But, it, but, in, but on the facts, because there was no choice of law, I will admit that it was much more evenly balanced. At least, at least we have, I think, pretty uh, a unanimous view, although strictly obiter, that 
if there is an express choice or an implied choice of law for the governing contract, that covers the arbitration agreement. That's the end of it. So all you've got to do is stick in an express choice of law. It's unfathomable why, in this case, the parties didn't. But as I understood it, they, in fact, had an argument. There was, well, there was a choice of Russian law in one draft that came out. But it was so obvious that everything led to Russian law that that should cover the arbitration agreement. I know that in your book, you say that there might be another solution to this. Well, sort of. You said that rather than choosing one of the systems of law, the law of the seat or the law of the contract, what the court could do, uh, or, or you say the better approach is to adopt uh, the validation principle. And of course, I think the Supreme Court mentioned it, but they said, or Lord Burroughs certainly thought that the validation principle did not apply here because there was no question of the validity of the arbitration clause here under either of the laws. But the validation principle simply is that the arbitration agreement should be upheld as valid under either of the two laws, either the law of the seat or the law governing the main contract. And so I wonder whether the court might have missed a trick here and should have thought more about the validation principle. I'm not sure they did miss a trick, but I don't think that the validation principle is only invoked where there's a question of validity. This might have been a perfect example of where you could say, we don't have to decide whether this arbitration agreement is governed by English law or Russian law. We can say that for the purposes of granting an injunction, we are satisfied that if it were governed by English law, it would be valid. And that should be the end of it. We, we won't make that decision because we don't have to. We simply can say it can only be English law or Russian law. If under one of those two, it's upheld, and under English law, of course, it's upheld, that should be the end of the matter. We grant the injunction. Good night. Good day to you. But I don't think the validation principle has been properly articulated and thought through yet. What I like is what's in, I think, the Swiss Private International Law Act, where it is statutorily codified that if the arbitration agreement is valid according to the law of the seat or the law of the governing contract or the law of Switzerland, if different, then it's valid. That's wonderful. And I think there's something similar in Sweden from memory. And that, I think, is something we should have in the Act. We should just be done with this and have it in the Act. I think that's a great idea. Shall we move on to the second aspect of the decision? And the whole reason for the argument, the way the argument arose, is the application for an anti-suit injunction because there were proceedings on foot in Russia. What happened is that the commercial court, in fact, refused to grant an anti-suit injunction, saying that the Russian court was better placed to look at the question of the scope of the arbitration agreement and decide whether or not the dispute fell within that scope. The Supreme Court thought that actually, and this is the decision of both the majority and the minority, they thought no matter what's the governing law of the arbitration clause, the decision on the anti-suit injunction has to be the one for the English court. And the English court is to take that decision, whether by applying English law or by applying Russian law with the evidence as to that Russian law. Now, my question is for Beijing. Do you agree with this aspect of the decision? And in particular, do you think that the availability of anti-suit injunctions is an attractive and perhaps a necessary weapon in the English court's armory in support of arbitral proceedings? I think absolutely yes to both. The aggressive advocate in me loves the robust nature of the English court's position on this. I mean, essentially, they're telling parties, if you choose London as the seat, you have me 
English court as the curial court to assess if anyone is breaching that agreement. And, and I don't care if another court already has seized the issue and is determining it. I don't care if the law is a foreign law that matches even where that court is determining the question. I am going to have your back. And comity doesn't matter, right? Judicial brethren be gone. And I will be sure to determine for myself as to whether this arbitration agreement is being breached or not. And I think for a party that is looking for courts, as I said, that will have their back when they choose a seat, I I think that makes London a, a great choice. Practically speaking, I'm not sure that many courts will necessarily listen to such an injunction coming from the English court. I mean, and to be fair, why should they? If you think about it, if you are, let's say, the Russian court, and you've determined that Russian law applies to the question of, let's say, validity of the the arbitration agreement, and you're hearing argument on that, you have subject matter jurisdiction, you have personal jurisdiction, what is this court in the seat that should be dealing with arbitration procedure telling me what to do in relation to whether this is a nullity or not. That's for me to do, you know, the breach or not. And in fact, put it this way, there cannot be a breach of the arbitration agreement if it is void ab initio, right? So if I determine it's void ab initio, there's no breach because there was no arbitration agreement in the first place, and therefore I don't have to listen to the injunction. So in practical terms, maybe less powerful, in symbolic terms, and certainly the fact that they are so proactively in favour of arbitration, I think fantastic for contracting parties. Let's move on to our next case, A and another and C and another. This is the Court of Appeal decision where the court was invited to consider the scope of Section 44.2 of the Arbitration Act, dealing with the powers of the court exercisable in support of arbitral proceedings and in particular, whether the various orders available under that section can be made against non-parties to the arbitration. The Court of Appeal decided the case on a narrow ground, namely that the relevant subsection of Section 44.2, subsection A, does extend to third parties, giving the court the power to make an order for the taking of evidence from a non-party witness in aid of foreign arbitration. However, it refused to go any further and consider whether it can make any orders against non-parties under other subsections of Section 44.2. So I've got a question for Liri on that. In your book, uh, Merkin and Flannery on the Arbitration Act, you described Section 44 as one of the most difficult provisions of the Arbitration Act. And I know that you also criticise the two High Court decisions Uh, which refused to extend Section 44 to orders against non-parties. Do you think the Court of Appeal was too cautious in refusing to go further than opining on the scope of subsection A of Section 44-2? I don't know why they avoided it. You had a really powerful bench, good good arbitration lawyers. Stephen Mayles, as Mr Justice Mayles, had come out with the Cruise City case where he said it doesn't bite on third parties, and that was a post-award a freezing injunction, which I thought was a paradigm example of a case where you really did need to bite against third parties. He was followed by Sarah Cockerell, as she was, in DTEC Morozov. And that, uh, she she took the same line. And I, uh, it was a perfect opportunity for, for Lord Justice Mills, as he'd become, to say, actually, I was wrong. Or, in fact, I think I was right. It might be that the court was split, that G- G- Lord Justice Flo and Lord Justice Mills were 
just simply unable to agree on whether the other provisions, but they dodged the question. It was a bit annoying. But at least the sensible, on its facts, the absolute right decision. Of course, you can get uh, witness summons against a, a non-party witness in support of an arbitration, even in New York, as this case was. Good decision. A question for Annalise. Why do you think the English courts are so reluctant to acknowledge their powers to make orders against non-parties in arbitration? Well, if you look at the decision of um, Mr. Justice Males, as he then was in Cruise City, he said he placed a lot of emphasis on the consensual nature of arbitration and the fact that arbitrators generally have no jurisdiction over non-parties. And I think that may be the reason for his reluctance in that case. However, that's somewhat surprising because we also have other decisions, earlier decisions, such as Unicargo back in 1996, where, you know, it was said that the court could grant injunctions against non-parties. I fully expect this to be explored further. I think the Court of Appeal just ducked dealing with it. And as Louis says, it's not really clear why. But I, the good news from a lawyer's point of view is I think it's now ripe for somebody to take this and run with it potentially all the way up to the Supreme Court to get a strong decision on this. Our next case, uh, Kazakhstan and the Worldwide Minerals, um, is the only bilateral investment treaty arbitration case. This was a successful challenge to arbitral tribunals' award of damages for breaches of a bilateral investment treaty on the grounds of serious irregularity under Section 68 of the Arbitration Act. In their arbitration proceedings themselves, the defendant, Worldwide Minerals, advanced a single case that the overall effect of all the breaches that they pleaded of the bilateral investment treaty resulted in an expropriation of and total loss of the investment. The tribunal, in fact, found that other than in two specific respects, the defendant's claims failed. However, despite the fact that the defendant never attempted to identify the losses that were caused by each of the breaches, and the amounts of such losses, the tribunal nevertheless proceeded to determine the issue of quantum uh, on the basis not argued for by the defendant. The case came to the High Court, and the High Court held that this amounted to a serious irregularity, since damages were awarded on a basis that was not contended for by the defendant at the hearing, and the claimant had not had a fair opportunity to deal with it. According to the court, where a party fails to set out causation and loss flowing from each of the alleged breaches, and a finding of some but not all breaches is made, the tribunal has only two choices. Conclude that the damages claim should fail in its entirety or issue a partial award setting out the breach findings and invite further submissions on causation and loss. And I know, Beja, you were involved in this case. So my question for you, what are the practical implications of this decision? Yeah, so I'm lead counsel for claimants in the underlying arbitration. So I'll, I'll reserve judgment on the decision itself uh, and focus on the on the practical repercussions. Now look, for those who, who practice treaty arbitration, no. It's very rarely, if ever, that you have um, just one single claim for one single act of the state. Usually you say, look, there's been expropriation, there's fair and equal treatment, there's full protection and security, there's umbrella clause, there's arbitrary treatment. You have a series of claims. Within those series of claims, you then have creeping conduct or composite conduct that either individually or holistically form the treaty breach itself. So you usually have 
a series of claims, and those series of claims are made up of a series of allegations as to the state's conduct, which both individually and instantly arrive to a treaty breach. Now, you could get lucky, and the tribunal could say, yes, everything you say, claimant, every breach, every act of the state is a breach of the treaty, and therefore, we find in your favor. But usually, and I would say pretty much nearly always, the tribunal will say, okay, you made you know, all these claims, but we find on this ground and not these other grounds. Okay, so they'll find FET, but not expropriation, for example, that's quite common. And then even within fair and equitable treatment, we find that this, this and this conduct breach the fair and equitable treatment standard, but not the five other conduct that you complained of that the state did within the fair and equitable treatment standard. Now, what this decision suggests is in that instance, the tribunal uh, sorry, the claimant has two choices. Either you can say to the tribunal, okay, look, I'm arguing A, B, C, D, E, and F. And if you find for all of them, here are my cause, here's the causation and damages. But if you find just A and not the rest, then it's this. If you find just B, then it's this. Or if you find A and C, it's this. A, D, and F, it's this. Now, imagine the amount of permutations that you can, I mean, literally, there's dozens of permutations. Now, I think the judge recognized, he said, that would be impossible. And, 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 and I, think, I think that's absolutely right. It would be inordinately expensive for a claimant to try and think of all the various permutations of treaty breaches that a tribunal might find. The other option in ISDS is you leave it to the tribunal to determine which are the breaches they find, and then what is the causation and quantum on the basis of those breaches? That's what I would say pretty much every ISTS case in favor of claimant has done where they haven't found that the claimant has made out the entirety of its case. Now, what respondent in this case said is, ah, but we didn't have the opportunity to argue causation and quantum as regard to the individual breaches that you might find and that deprived us of the opportunity of putting up a defense. And that's what the court agreed with. What is the practical implication of that? Well, the, as you said, the court said, either tribunal you can find there are no damages, okay, which is, I think, innately unfair that you say to the claimant, yes, you, you know, there was a breach of treaty, but sorry, you didn't give me the dozens of permutations, and therefore I'm going to find you at zero. Insanely unfair. Or let's go again on causation and quantum which is a waste of time and money. So I think what this case may end up in doing is that every treaty arbitration that is non-ICSID, seated in London, will have to bifurcate causation and quantum from liability, wait to see what and which of the claims the tribunal upholds in relation to the claimant's case, then say, and on the basis of these claims and breaches of treaty, what is the causation and quantum theory? Because if you don't, right, if you, the tribunal, say, you've argued 10, I found two, and here are the causation and quantum, the respondent will now say, as Kazakhstan did, I never got a chance to tell you about the two. I only got to argue about the 10, because that's the case the claimant put on. And my inability to argue about the two means that you have found something which I wasn't able to argue. And therefore, we have to go again, and that will be challenged. So I'm a little troubled at 
the case not taking into account how ISDS works. You know, it's almost as if they've taken an, an English contract paradigm of breach causation quantum and not fully grasped the ISDS nature of how claims are made, how causation is fixed and how damages flow from that and how tribunals have done it in the 500 of cases that have gone. So I, I have to say I worry slightly. I'm, I'm almost glad that the case has slightly flown under the radar because if you think about it, London is a seat for treaty arbitrations that are not exit. There are quite a few. So I think parties should be aware that there is this danger lurking. And if you're a claimant and you win a case, but all your claims are not found by the tribunal, and then they say there's causation and quantum, you may get challenged uh, in the English court on the basis of this precedent. Thank you, Beju. It's quite concerning that this case, as you say, is flying under the radar and um, parties are not yet necessarily alive to the implications that it will have. And as I understand it, it is not subject to an appeal. Is that right? Yeah, correct. I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying, yeah, we're, we're, it was remanded back to the tribunal. And that is what we are doing now. Thank you. Well, um, here we are. Just something to bear in mind um, if you are conducting one of these arbitrations at the moment. Uh, I want to raise um, one final question on the, because I can't not talk about it, on this brave new world where we are conducting remote hearings. I know that um, despite the difficulties with remote hearings today, and we're recording this in January, the LCAA said that they've had a record number of references in 2020. Most of them, I expect, would have been done remotely. I know that Annalisa, together with Gary Bourne, conducted this summer a survey on the use of remote hearings and arbitrations, results of which are already published. Uh, it's a separate chapter, chapter seven, I believe, in international arbitration and the COVID-19 revolution. So do give it a read. And I think all of you by now would have had experience of remote hearing in arbitrations. Can I please ask you to give one of your best practical tips for advocates conducting remote hearings? And if I may start with Annalise first, please. So preparation is even more key. I will say 90% of being a good advocate is preparation. But obviously, when you're remote, that the written submissions take on an increased importance. So my top tip is keep oral submissions short and succinct. But remember that you are still engaged in the art of persuasion. Thank you. Louis? Try very hard not to conduct any hearings whilst you're sitting on the loo, if at all possible. I think that is a top tip for me. And Beju? Let me preface it by saying this. I hate virtual hearings as an advocate. I love virtual hearings as an arbitrator, right? Let, let that percolate. My tip is this as an advocate, get as short a day as possible. It is exhausting sitting there trying to focus on a screen and the short day really, really up. Let, let, let's do it English court style. Let's finish at 430 start at 10 rather than the arbitration days of 8am to 6pm. If, if you try and do the same hours, you will be shattered. I agree with that. I think what's interesting, one result from the survey that we should all take on board, though, is that clients love remote hearings. So Tetiana, they don't regard them as difficult. They actually regard them as preferable because they can tune in, tune out, go to the loo, do what they want whilst they have you on the screen. So I think it's particularly the advocates who find it tough. 
at the minute, but it's also a new medium. I think the other thing that's rather wonderful about remote hearings is that young advocates can really make a splash and can can make a great impression. And so I hope it will lead to greater diversity and opportunity, both for young advocates and younger arbitrators. I absolutely agree with that, Annalise, and thank you for mentioning it. I, I personally found it incredibly refreshing to be able to do remote hearings. And finally, we have time for one final question, which has nothing to do with arbitration. This is a question we ask of all the guests um, of the podcast, and it's this. If you were not a lawyer, what would you be doing now? Can I ask Beiji first? Well, if I, if I had a modicum of talent, I would play football, but I don't. And so I'd, I'd be a history professor. Yeah, I wanted to do history, but I have a, 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 an Indian tiger mother who insisted that her son will not be a historian and must be, a, a, you know, one of the, the, the big three. And so I ended up as a lawyer, but I would be a history professor and I would insist on sort of a, a green Harris T, tweed jacket with the corduroy uh, elbow patches and talk about medieval times and Victorian times. Yeah, I, I would love that. Brilliant. I think uh, that would be ideal. What about you, Louis? I'd be like that character in With Nell and I, you know, that sort of utterly useless, lolling, pathetic person who said, I could have, you know, I, I could have been a contender, a bit like the sort of Marlon Brando thing, just sort of lamenting the fact that I didn't become a lawyer. What I was going to do before uh, I did switch to law was to become an, um, a fighter pilot. And I, oh, that's unusual. I passed all of the uh, rigorous testing until the very, 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 very final one before they put their ink on the contract, the bursary contract, which was the site test, the final site test. I passed through all the other ones. What about you, Annalise? Well, I still harbour an ambition to come out and play Wembley. And uh, I'm a bit of, oh, no, I was a bit of a singer in my, uh, in my youth. <laughs> and every time I go to a concert, I still envisage myself coming out and actually playing. And, you know, who sing knows? Maybe sing one day. Sing us out. <laughs> well, well, I and, and to sing us out of today's podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm working on it in lockdown with my daughter's um, Lucky Voice karaoke set for Christmas. So just you just you wait. Thank you very much, Annalise, Beja and Louis, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there you have it. Lots of interesting perspectives and thoughts for the future. I'm very grateful to all our panellists for taking the time to join me. So thanks again to Louis Flannery QC, Beja Vasani and Annalisa Day QC. I hope you enjoyed our discussion as much as I did and that you will join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.